Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. Join us as we continue this program in Search for the True Church, presented by Tony Rikers. God is calling His people to come back to Him, to come out of fallen churches, out of confusion, out of falsehood. But friends, when God calls you out, when He's calling all of us out, guess what God does? He also calls us in. Into what? Friends, He's calling us into the true church of God. We have now identified the first church of Revelation, the false church. We are now going to identify the true church because God's calling us out of error, but friends, he's calling you and I to come into truth. He has a people. God has always had a people on this earth. He has always had a church with truth on this earth. And that true church tonight is represented in Revelation chapter 12 as the delicate comely woman, the bride of Christ. What we have seen in Revelation 12, or will see in Revelation 12, is a brief history of the Christian church from the time of Jesus Christ right down to the day which we live. Let's now go to Revelation chapter 12 and let's read verses 1 to 5 in that chapter and find out about the true church of God, his bride, his woman. Revelation 12 verse 1, the Bible reads, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Verse 2. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Here we see the church of God, the pure church, the pure apostolic church of the times of Christ. In this this uh, chapter we've seen so far some symbolic language. First of all, the woman we know is the church. Isn't that right? But what about the dragon? Who is the dragon that appears in Revelation chapter 12, 1 to 5? Who is the dragon? Well, friends, we know who the dragon is, don't we? Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 tells us the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So here we have the woman. We have the church, of course. We have the dragon, Satan, who is waiting for this woman to bring forth this child so he can destroy the child, the man-child. Now, of course, we have to ask, well, who is the man-child? The man-child, friends, is Jesus Christ. How do we know that it's Jesus Christ? There are two points in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, that help us identify Jesus Christ as this man-child that the church is going to bring forth. Notice verse 5 again, Revelation 12, verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, 
and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. There's two particular points here about this man-child that we can use to identify who it is. The first one is that this man-child will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Friends, that refers to Jesus Christ. Notice Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, talking about Christ. He comes on a white horse. He comes as a conqueror, as victorious. The Bible says in Revelation 19, verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is talking about in the future, it's talking about Jesus Christ, and it says he will rule with what? A rod of iron, same as the man-child of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 also said that this man-child would be caught up unto God and to his throne. The only one caught up to God's throne and that will rule all nations with a rod of iron is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he was the one that was caught up eventually to God and to his throne. Ephesians 1 verse 20 tells us that God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ ascended from this earth to his father, to his right hand. So friends, the man-child must be Jesus Christ. So here we have the woman, the church. She's bringing forth the man-child, Jesus Christ. The dragon, Satan, is there to destroy the man-child as soon as he's born, Jesus. How did Satan try and destroy Jesus Christ as soon as he was born? At the time of Christ's birth, Satan was working through the pagan Roman Empire and Satan influenced Herod, a, a ruler under Rome, to try and murder all the babies of Bethlehem, hoping that he would do what? Kill Jesus Christ as well. But Jesus Christ was warned. Joseph was warned by an angel in a dream to get out and go down to Egypt. Satan tried to destroy Jesus Christ as soon as he was born, but he failed. He tried right through his ministry, but Satan failed to destroy him. What happened after Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and left this earth? When Jesus was here, Satan persecuted Jesus Christ relentlessly. He tempted him. But after Jesus was gone... What could Satan do? Jesus is gone. Satan can't tempt Jesus Christ anymore. He couldn't try to get him to fall. He couldn't persecute him. So what did, Jesus, what did uh, Satan do after Jesus was beyond his reach in heaven? He couldn't attack him anymore. So who did he attack? You know, if you're a pretty corrupt sort of a person and you want to hurt somebody and you can't get to them, the best way to hurt them is to do what? Is to hurt those who they love. The best thing for Satan to do, in which is what he did do, he couldn't get to Jesus Christ, so he thought, I'll attack his bride. I will attack his church. And that's exactly what Satan did. Notice what happens now when Jesus, he's ascended to heaven. Notice now, Revelation chapter 13 again, chapter 12, sorry, looking at verse 13. It says, The dragon persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Jesus Christ is born into this world. He comes to the church. He goes back to heaven. Now Satan can't attack Jesus, so he attacks who? He attacks the woman. He persecutes the woman. He persecutes the church. You know, friends, when Jesus left this world, before he left, he told his disciples, there's going to be persecution. If they've killed me, the Son of God, 
they're going to persecute you. And friends, that's exactly what took place. Satan could no longer vent his hatred on Jesus Christ because he was gone. So he decided to hurt Jesus Christ by taking it out on his church. He tried to crush out the early Christian church to destroy that church. He thought, if I can destroy this church, there is no church. There is no bride. I will win the battle. As we go into history, friends, we find some very solemn things take place. In the early centuries AD, particularly through the Roman Empire, the Roman pagan empire, the Christians were persecuted mercilessly. Thousands were killed for their faith. All but one of Christ's disciples died a martyr's death. Paul, the great apostle Paul, had, was uh, beheaded outside the walls of Jerusalem. Thousands of Christians were tortured. They were thrown in dungeons. They sealed their testimony with their own blood. They were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. You know, many of them were brought before pagan altars and they were told, if you would take a pinch of incense and place it on that pagan altar, you can live. But friends, these people... These early disciples, they loved God so faithfully and so surely that they would not even take a pinch of incense and place it on a pagan altar knowing that they were worshipping another God. The Bible says they loved not their lives unto the death. And Satan began to realize something as persecution took place. The more he persecuted, the more Christians seemed to arise. One historian said the blood of the martyrs was like seed they would kill one and two popped up in its place, his place. They would kill the two, then there seemed to be four. They'd kill the four, then there seemed to be eight. Satan began to realize the more that they killed, the more that they martyred, their testimony was converting others and the church was exploding, so he changed his tactics. He changed his tactics instead of trying to just blot out the Christian church. He decided he would have his own form of Christianity. He would have his own church. It would cause confusion. He would still persecute people, the people of God. But he would confuse many with false doctrines, false religion, false wine, the false cup of salvation. And the persecution continued after the Roman Empire disappeared and was transformed into the papal Roman Empire. The persecution continued where thousands were burnt at the stakes. They were tortured. They were martyred simply for having the word of God in their home, simply for saying we want to follow God according to the dictates of our own conscience. The persecution continued for century after century. Now, what did the church, the true church of God, do during this time of persecution? And how long was this persecution to last? We find in Revelation chapter 12 again in verse 6, something very interesting. Notice this verse. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God and they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Here we find the church of God. Satan persecutes the church. It flees into the wilderness where it's looked after, as it were, for a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now, friends, a thousand two hundred and three score days or twelve hundred and sixty days or as we've learned in previous lectures, 1260 years, is the exact same time period that the papacy ruled through the Dark Ages. That's the same number, 1260 days or years, has come up in other prophecies. Now we find the church of God flees into the wilderness 
for protection for the same 1260 years. Remember this chart, we've seen it before on the screen. The 1260 years of papal supremacy. Remember back there in 538, the Ostrogoths, they were overthrown. 1260 years brought us to the year 1798 when Pope Pius VI was imprisoned by Napoleon. There was that 1260 years of papal supremacy that Satan tried to blot out the true Christian faith. And the way that the Christian church survived was by going into, as the Bible says, the wilderness. The true church of God fled into the wilderness, into the remote places of the earth to hide from her enemies. And friends, it's a well-known historical fact that during the dark ages, God's people fled to the caves, to the solitary places of the earth. And they kept alive there in the wilderness, the true Christian faith. There was the Waldenses and the Albigenses in the Piedmont Valleys. The Huguenots all over France and Bohemia. Other faithful Christians fled to the, the Alps of northern Italy and southern France. And they settled in secluded valleys and caves and in remote mountain places. And there the truth of God was kept alive. As Satan the dragon persecuted the church, the truth was kept alive in the wilderness. A tremendous example of this is the Bible-believing Waldensians. Up there in the Piedmont valleys of Italy, they were hidden away. Crusade after crusade was sent up there to wipe them out, but the strong fortress of the wilderness was their defense. For years, for centuries, they lived there, hidden away in uh, Waldensian mountain villages. There they would, they would hand copy the Bible. They would write the Bible out by hand. But on the screen there's a picture of original Bible copyist table. They would spend hours writing out portions of the scriptures. They would send missionaries down into the world. They would go as peddlers selling wares. And when they had opportunity, they would pull out some of the scriptures that they had written. They'd try and pass it on to shed light to those who were living in darkness. Because back in those days, if you had a Bible, that was heresy. And you were burnt at the stake. And many of these people, they lived in darkness. They didn't have the word of God. And these Waldensians would try and shed the light with these sad, confused souls. Many of those missionaries would go down to those, to those valleys and they would never come back. They tried to keep alive the truth. And friends, what took place here is in the wilderness for 1260 years, we find God keeps alive the true church. But as we come to the end of the 1260 years, as the papacy was wounded, that deadly wound, as the church now begins to come out of the wilderness, we find the true church of God come to view. The remnant church of God, the church that will stand in these last days against the false system, against the wine of Babylon, against the mark of the beast, against the Antichrist power, it comes to view after the year 17. 98, when the church now emerges from the wilderness because the persecution has stopped. Notice what verse 17, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, says about now this remnant church. Revelation 12, verse 17, a powerful text of Scripture. It reads as follows, And the dragon, Satan in other words, was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Here we see, friends, for 1260 years, Satan tries to destroy the true church. He hasn't succeeded. After 1798, he's just wrathed with the church. He still hasn't been able to stamp the church out. And now there is a remnant church. He is wroth with this church. And the Bible tells us a couple of identifying points here of who this church is. The Bible says that she keeps the commandments of God and she has the testimony of Jesus. Here we see, friends, God's remnant church coming to view after 1798. Two identifying points. They keep the commandments of God. They are a remnant and they have the testimony of Jesus. Well, what is the testimony of Jesus? Once again, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it tells us what the testimony of Jesus is. Revelation 19, verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the gift of prophecy. This remnant church would have the gift of prophecy as a guiding light in that church. It would be a remnant people. You know, friend, Satan hates the remnant church. He hates the end-time people of God because they are the ones that will stand in contrast to the great counterfeit church that he has set up in these last days, of which we have learnt in the very near future the entire world is going to worship. Wouldn't you hate the remnant church as well? When your whole plan is set to go and there's this group of people that God has raised up and given them truth and they are standing in your way. Wouldn't you try and blot them out? Well, friends, that's exactly what Satan is trying to do right now. He's trying to destroy the remnant people of God. So who is the remnant church that God has raised up to stand up against Babylon and her daughters and her confusion? First of all, what is a remnant? What is a remnant? You know, if you go to the carpet shop like I did just a little while ago and you're looking for a small piece of carpet, they call it a remnant. I went to the carpet shop and said, I want a uh, couple of meters of carpet. And he said to me, there's some remnant rolls over there. Pick out which one you want and you can take it home. Pay for it, of course, <laughs> but you can take that home. Now, when I went over to that carpet, looked at those rolls, it was the last part on the roll. It was the remnant, isn't that right? But was it any different to the first part of the roll? Of course it wasn't, friends. It's the same roll of carpet. This is just the last part. At the end of the roll, it's called the remnant. Friends, the remnant church is to be the same as the first church, the apostolic church of Jesus Christ. But we are now just at the end of time. It's called the remnant. But its foundation, my friends, is exactly the same as it was back in the early church. The pillar and ground of the truth, Timothy was told. So, friends, who is the remnant church? Does God have a remnant church? Is there a church that fits the identifying marks? Let's have a look at the identifying marks that we've gleaned in our study tonight. The identifying marks of the remnant church. The first one, it arose after 1798. The remnant church, friends, would arise to view after the year 1798 as the church emerges from the wilderness. The second identifying point is simply this, that this remnant church has to be what? It has to keep the commandments of God. The third point we've learned so far is this. It has the testimony of Jesus 
the gift of prophecy. In other words, it would have the gift of prophecy manifest in the church. The fourth point is this. It's a remnant. It's the same as the original apostolic message. It's a continuation of the same church. But it's just at the end of time giving the same message that God gave with the early church. Righteousness by faith through Jesus Christ. The word of God as the foundation of our faith. The fifth point is this that we've learned so far, that this church preaches the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages. God is raising up this church. He's gathering his people together to preach the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages because the three angels' messages is a message that goes to the world to prepare them for the coming of Christ and to warn them against the dangers of Babylon. And the last point we've learned is this, that this church must have a presence in all the world. There will be two universal churches at the end, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and her daughters, and there will be the remnant church of God. Why must have a presence in all the world? Simply because of this, friends. If you're going to preach a worldwide message, you must have a worldwide church. Isn't that right? Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said these famous words. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. At the end of time, this church, this remnant church, will preach the gospel of the kingdom, which is what gospel? The everlasting gospel. It will be preached in the entire world as a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. Friends, this church must be a worldwide denomination. This must be a worldwide church taking a worldwide message to the world. You can't preach to the whole world unless you have a presence in all the world, friends. It must be a universal movement. God's remnant church will take this gospel to the world. You know, friends, as we look at this tonight, we have to ask ourselves a question at this point. Is there a church in our world right now tonight that fits these identifying marks? Or is this church still to arise? You know, friends, if you're going to look at this and study into it, you're going to discover, as I have discovered in the past, that there is only one church in the world that meets these identifying marks, these seven or six identifying marks. And I'm not going to tell you who that church is. I'm going to allow the false church to tell you who the true church is, who they believe the true church is. You see, back in the late 1800s, something very interesting took place the Roman Catholic Church put out a document called Rome's Challenge. Rome's Challenge. The little booklet, Rome's Challenge, was a challenge to the Protestant denominations of the world. They were saying to the Protestant churches of the world, you guys are saying to us, sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of our faith, and yet you're hanging on to all of our doctrines. In other words, you're still drinking from our cup. And in Rome's challenge, as, he, as they challenged the Protestant world, either to come back to Rome or to go to the Bible and the Bible alone, they tell you in Rome's challenge what church they believe is the only true church following the Bible and the Bible alone. In Rome's challenge, they tell you that the Seventh-day, this is the Catholic Church speaking, that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the only true Protestant church because they are the only ones that follow the Bible, and the Bible alone. The rest, they say, are still hanging on to Catholic doctrines. 
And friends, we've seen so far tonight, that means they're still daughters of Babylon. You may be halfway out, drinking half the cup of God and half the cup of Babylon, but friends, it still classes you as a daughter of Babylon. In 1995, there was an interesting statement coming out from the Catholic Church. It said this. It says, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did, happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. Notice what it goes on to say now. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Friends, they are saying to the Protestant world and to the world at large, if you want to be a Protestant, if you want to go back to the Bible and the Bible only, you must logically go and join the Seventh-day Adventist church because they're the only ones that hold to the Bible and the Bible only as their rule of faith. The other churches all have some sort of wine of Babylon as a doctrine, as a teaching in their church. It is only the Seventh-day Adventist church. They're saying, not me, friends, they're saying that holds to the Word of God and the Word of God only. But is the Seventh-day Adventist church the remnant church of God? Remember, friends, as I'm talking here tonight, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about a system. There's good and bad people in every single church, including the Seventh-day Adventist church. Don't expect to go to a church that's got Seventh-day Adventists on the front door and expect perfection. Expect it to be filled with a bunch of sinners, as all other churches are. All the churches have their good and their bad. We're talking about a foundational system, a belief system, the pillar and the ground of truth, which has to be the foundation of the church of God. Outside of that, it cannot be the church of God. And there are many great churches out there doing many great works, but sadly, they're still drinking in many ways from the cup of Babylon. But is the Seventh-day Adventist church the true church? I believe from my own study and in my own investigation that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. The Seventh-day Adventist church, I believe, from my study and investigation on this subject, is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Are they a better church? No. Are they holier? Absolutely not. Are they the only ones going to be saved? Absolutely not. Is it a better organization? No. Is it a perfect church? Absolutely not, friends. Well, why do I say that it is the remnant church of God? It's because the message and truth that they hold. There are three reasons why I would say it's the remnant church of God. The first is that the Catholic Church says it's the only one following the Bible and the Bible only. Secondly, it's the only church that fits the identifying marks. And thirdly, it's because the message that they preach. It's the message that they preach that makes the foundation of the church. It's the pillar and the ground of truth. And friends, the reason why I preach up here night after night is not because I get paid from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because I don't. I don't get paid one cent to preach this. There's nothing in this for me. There's no, there's no backhand. There's no bonuses. But I preach this message night after night because as I've studied, as I've searched the Word of God, I have found it's the true message. It is the truth, friend. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. Remember, we started by saying that little saying, as an eternal principle, you do not go to the church to find the truth. You go to the Bible to find the truth. 
And when you find the truth, you look for a church that teaches the truth. I want to share with you for a few moments my own personal testimony. You see, friends, I was not brought up as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I was not brought up as a Bible-believing Sabbath Christian. I was brought up in a lovely Roman Catholic home. I went to Catholic school. Like most Catholics, I was baptized as an infant. I attended Mass on Sundays. I believed in purgatory and immortality of the soul and church images and and, uh, following the Pope's uh, beliefs. I was taught to be an altar boy when I was at primary school. But something, friends, was tugging at my heart. Something was spiritually missing in my life. And deep within my heart, and I believe there's many out there tonight, deep within their heart, they're longing for truth. They're longing for the answers that make sense. In my late teenage years, I began to study the Bible. I began looking for those answers. And the more I studied, the more I was convinced by God and God's word that he was leading me to accept all of his truth. The issue simply boiled down to this, friends. Would I accept a church based on man's ideas or would I accept the divinely established movement of God based on the Bible? And as I began looking at different denominations, as I studied all these different denominations, I came back to the point that they were all drinking from the wine of Babylon except for that one the Seventh-day Adventist church. It is, my friends, the remnant church of Bible prophecy. And that may may sound arrogant or proud. I don't mean to be arrogant or proud, but I do mean to tell you what I believe is the truth tonight. Because the evidence, my friends, is there. God has his people all through the denominations. But friends, there's a call of God tonight to come out of Babylon, to come out of confusion, to take a hold of the cup of salvation and drink all of it, not half. Let's look at those identifying marks one more time and see if they fit the Seventh-day Adventist church. The first identifying mark was this. It would arise after 1798. And friends, that's exactly what took place. After the year 1798, in the year 1863, we find the Seventh-day Adventist church come to view. This remnant church must keep the commandments of God. Friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church is the only, underscore these words, friends, it is the only worldwide denomination that keeps all the commandments of God. It's the only one. There are many other denominations that keep Sunday as, uh, sorry, Saturday as their Sabbath. They're minority organizations. They're not worldwide organizations. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, my friends, is the only worldwide denomination that keeps the commandments of God. All of them, not nine, ten. The third point was that this church has the testimony of Jesus, the gift of prophecy. Many churches in our land today claim to have the gift of prophecy. They may well do, I don't know. You must test the prophets, the Bible says. But the SDA church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, does have the gift of prophecy in it. Identifying mark number four, This remnant church was the same as the original apostolic church message. And friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church is the exact same message. It's the Bible and the Bible alone, not the traditions of men. The remnant will teach the same church message as the early apostolic church taught. It will agree, all its teachings will agree with the Bible. Then if I mark number five, we learned that this church 
preaches the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages. You know, friends, as I speak here right now tonight, this point knocks out every denomination on the face of the earth except the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The only church on the face of this earth that preaches the three angels' messages and the everlasting gospel contained in those three angels' messages, the only one, friends, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The only church that's calling back to obedience to the law of God and the Sabbath commandment that's been trodden underfoot is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The only church that teaches that the hour of God's judgment has begun, as we learnt last night in 1844, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a call to come back to God, to obedience to God. This church is giving that message, to leave the false doctrines of Babylon and the false teachings of Babylon. Friends, the only church tonight that preaches the third angel's message, warning the world who the Antichrist power is, as difficult as that can be at times, is the Seventh-day Adventist church. The only church that is preaching to the world right now today that Sunday is the mark of the beast is the Seventh-day Adventist church. The sad part is, friends, if you go back about 100 years, every Protestant denomination, every Protestant denomination taught that the Antichrist of Bible prophecy was the Roman Catholic system. Every denomination. 100 years later to today where we live, only one church teaches that the Antichrist of Bible prophecy is the Roman Catholic system. The rest have become drunk with the false teachings and the false wine of Babylon, false prophetic interpretations, looking over to Israel, waiting for the Messiah, for the uh, the temple to be rebuilt and the Antichrist to appear over there. Friends, it comes directly from the Roman Catholic system. In the year 1590, Francisco Ribeiro began the futuristic theory of the Antichrist. And right through to the day, the Protestant churches have all taken it on board And nobody has a clue who the Antichrist is anymore. Nobody, friends. Nobody has a clue who the Antichrist is anymore because they've been drinking from the wrong cup. But friends, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is still giving that message. It's still giving the third angel's message, identifying who the Antichrist power is of Bible prophecy. And the last point was that this church must have a presence in all the world. Friends, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a presence. It's well established in the entire world. It's taking that great three angels' messages right now tonight, right through to the entire world. Thousands upon thousands are responding to the message of God. Thousands upon thousands are coming out of Babylon and they are committing themselves not so much to a church or a church building or a denomination, but to the truth, friend. But to the truth. And they're allowing that truth to come into their lives, into their hearts, to transform them. And they're sharing that truth with others. And friends, I want to give you a small glimpse before we close tonight. A small glimpse at the force working in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church right now tonight has become the fastest growing worldwide Christian church today. Today there is an average of five new congregations opening daily. There is an average of 3,000 people being added to the church each day as we speak. There are over 20 million people that now worship in Adventist churches worldwide. The Adventists run hundreds of schools, health centers, hospitals, printing houses, radio and television stations around the world. Friends, that message tonight that I've been preaching to you over the last 12 lectures is going to the world. 
And the big question is this. What will you do with that message? I know tonight that many of you are deeply challenged. You're deeply challenged, thinking in your mind and your heart, what do I do with this message I've heard tonight? How can I leave my church, my family, my friends? Everybody's there. I was born in that church. How can I change my worship style? How can I change from Sunday to Sabbath? How can I change all my belief system? Friends, I encourage you to change one step at a time. Tonight, friends, God has a people. He loves those people. He calls them out of Babylon. He says they're in Babylon, but he's calling them out into the remnant church to take a stand with the people of God in these last days. There will be two universal movements at the end of time. Mystery Babylon the Great and her daughters. And there will be the remnant church of God. Friends, God is calling to our hearts and our minds tonight. In Revelation chapter 18 verse 4, God is speaking to each one of us and he says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Friends, I want to encourage you tonight. I want to plead with you tonight to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Will you accept the Bible and the religion of the Bible or will you accept the traditions of men? Tonight, I want to challenge you, friend, to commit your life to Jesus Christ, to commit your life to his word, to commit your life to taking into your life the three angels' messages and being prepared for the second coming of Christ. And if God's speaking to your heart tonight, friends, to come out of Babylon and you want to come into the remnant church, friends, the doors will be wide open. The arms will be outstretched to welcome you into that church. And friends, God needs you tonight. God needs you to be part of that end-time army to take that message to the ends of the earth that Jesus Christ may come. May God bless you. May God lead you. May God empower you. May God strengthen you in your walk with him and your decision to follow Jesus Christ all the way. May God bless you and good night. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit Cornerstone hyphen ministries.org You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Butler, and I want to welcome you to Healthy Living Around the World. I'm on site at Hergelia Lifestyle Center in Northern Romania, and my guest today is Frank Rabusic. Welcome, Frank. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for being on the program today. I just want to know, obviously you're here at Hergelia, but where are you from originally? I was born in the Czech Republic. Okay, Czech Republic, all right. Um, is that where you've spent most of your life or what's been your, your general area where you've lived in? Um, so I was born in the Czech Republic and when I was 18, I went to study to America. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of years, I decided to go back to study a bit more in Czech. And then um, when I was... Um, 
after my university, I went to live in England, in Oxford. Okay. I lived there for 10 years, and then after that, I lived in London. Um, and then I moved back to America to live in Boston for uh, four years. And then I moved back to London, and then Oxford and Cardiff, which was my uh, last place before going to Romania. Right. So you've been to quite a few different places outside of Czech mm-hmm. uh, for, it sounds like, a lot of your your um, your life experience. So yeah. share with us how you came to then come to Hergelia. So I trained as a macroeconomist and a risk manager. Mm-hmm. And I did that for uh, all of my professional life. Um, working as head of risk and trading in energy, um, managing risk globally, and um, I enjoy reading um, the Spirit of Prophecy books. And while sitting in the board meetings, I would often think about my contribution to the world and happiness in, in general. Yes. Um, I managed uh, large teams and um, those were extremely successful mm-hmm. um, because I implemented a lot of the things I read in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy. But I also read at the same time that um, in the last days, uh, people will be uh, more sick experiencing a disease and, and death. Yes. And that in the last days, the, the health message would become the right hand of the gospel and it may be the only way to share the gospel. And the more I, I thought about that, uh, the more irrelevant my job was becoming. Right. Um, to the point where I would hear a voice telling me to um, leave what I was doing and focus on um, health mission work. Okay. And when I made a decision to leave my job, it took about two years to um, resign from Mm -hmm. what I was doing, which Mm -hmm. was uh, the top of a business to uh, come to Ergolia. I did a little research, um, very uh, methodical and analytical way of listing all the sanatoriums and life centers around the world, which also had schools and which were in English and the program lasted 12 months. And then through a process of elimination and uh, the the speed of response and the friendliness mm-hmm. and the classes Hergelia um, came on top of of the choice. Right. Okay. So wow, that's been quite a quite a process you've been mm-hmm. through in transitioning in your mind from being in that sort of high up mm-hmm. business role all the way to deciding to come here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your interest then has been motivated into the health area. Can I ask what, is there, is there anything that might have happened in your life and experience that given you a somewhat of a real deep appreciation for healthy living and healthy living principles? So early days of um, 
being an Adventist, I didn't really understand the health message. And uh, in the churches in, in England, mm-hmm. it's not something that is uh, promoted uh, widely or it, it wasn't promoted um, 20 years ago. Um, and so it took me a bit of time to um, get to learn a few principles. And I think it was a lady from Australia Okay. Um, from that well-known lifestyle center, I think Barbara. Oh yes, Barbara O'Neill um, is that the one? Came to yes. England and did some series of presentations. Okay. Mm-hmm. It all sounded very strange to me. Okay. I should stop eating French baguettes and <laughs> cheese and milk and other things. Yes. Um, but it stayed in, in my mind. Okay. Mm. And I think that was the first seed for the health message. And then my dad um, was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer and died very suddenly. It was very quick. I think within five months he, he, he died. And he did not live a very healthy lifestyle. We did have quite a few animals. Uh, we, we had a small farm. It uh, five pigs and 40 rabbits and 40 chickens and ducks and he would eat mainly meat and and drink alcohol and eat white rice and white bread and a lot of refined things and sugar Mm. Um, and that was a bit of a wake-up call for for all of us quite overnight um, my mom and my brother and i and his wife decided to make some radical changes mm-hmm. uh, regarding what we ate. Um, we introduced a lot of fruits and vegetables, um, stopped eating meat, and uh, started eating whole grains. Okay, yeah. Did that make you feel better, or how did, how did that make you feel once you'd started changing your lifestyle? It was definitely a, a step toward the right direction. Yes. I wouldn't say it was a remarkable change overnight. Okay. Mm. Um, but it was definitely a move in the right direction regarding maintaining uh, a healthy uh, weight and not being exposed to diseases as much as uh, before. Yes. The biggest change, I think, in my life was uh, when I was in America uh, second time and um, I was... Um, I knew the health message and the health uh, principles and yet, for whatever reason, they, they have a lot of sugar in their food. Mm. And even if you try to eat healthy, you still put put on weight (laughs) if you do not eat in moderation. And so I started putting on quite a lot of weight to the point where I thought that this is enough and I have to do something. And that's when I uh, certified as a fitness instructor. And that's what I did after my regular job. Mm -hmm. And I started running uh, marathons. Wow. And training for triathlon, so mm-hmm. running a lot, swimming, cycling, and that was a completely different level of, of fitness and health. Yes. You can eat healthy, but exercise for me is absolutely crucial. 
it just makes you feel really well. It benefits the cardiovascular system, and it also benefits a lot to the mind. And so I lost a lot of weight. I became extremely uh, fit mm -hmm. and extremely healthy. I wouldn't have flus, and I, a lot of people would pick up disease, but my immune system was extremely, extremely high. Yeah. So you were implementing all these changes mm -hmm. into your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Is this still while you're doing that job as a a like high up as an yes. executive? Yes. So I yeah, would still so. be um, top level executive. Yes. And at the same time, I would be um, teaching fitness classes. Right. In, okay. In a gym, that's something I always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. A health ministry. And God would tell me or speak to me to uh, be a fitness instructor and to get certified and, and to reach the people. And mm. people in the US are extremely obese. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would do those classes for nothing. They would give me a class and very quickly it would be full. And then I, I shared with the, with the people... Um, everything I've read and I learned in the Spirit of Prophecy books. Okay. So I would tell them, it's great you come here to exercise, cardio is very important, but are you drinking enough water and yes. do you know how to drink water? Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, tell us more. And I would share with them, I'll drink two and a half to three liters a day and space it between meals. Great. They try it. It works. What else do you have? Well, cut down cheese. Don't eat cheese. Mm. Don't drink milk. Great. What else? Don't eat meat. And um, So rather than being a paid fitness instructor who is interested in people to be always um, overweight mm. so that you always have clients, mm -hmm. I was interested in, in people's well-being because my main motivation wasn't pay. And I was able to share with them uh, a lot of truth I was reading in, mm. in, in those books, which mm -hmm. most fitness instructors don't do. Yes. They just teach them how to exercise and that, that's it. But I think it's powerful to combine both exercise and, and nutrition and, and diet. Yes. And then when you do that, the effects are quite amazing. So uh -huh, uh -huh. pretty much everybody in my class uh, lost weight and then they would give me another class, it would be packed. And then another third class packed and four wow. class packed. And I think it was one of the most popular classes in, in the gym, which had like 3,000 members. Wow. So that's almost like you, you had like a bit of a ministry um, mm -hmm. in, in doing that fitness instructing mm -hmm. work, didn't you? But I also used it at, at work. So yeah, all of my okay. staff, I would tell them what to eat and what not to eat and what to drink. Yes. How to conduct themselves. And I saw a, a quite a steep drop in, in sickness levels. That's very, very interesting. So you've, you've developed this aspect of healthy living in your own mm -hmm. life and in your own work with people. Mm -hmm. And now you come to the point where you're wanting to come to Hergalia. Mm -hmm. What was your motivation wanting to come here? So the main reason was to observe how the lifestyle center works. Uh -huh. 
and understanding every single detail mm. of, of the routine. Um, how long is a session? How many patients? What does the room look like? How is it equipped? Yes. Um, how do the finances run? Where do they source things from? What about staffing? Uh, yes. What are the ratios? Equipment? Just like a, a boss or managing director would have to know about a mm. lifestyle center because my goal is to have my own and so that was the reason i came here to to learn how to set a lifestyle center uh-huh. and how to run it successfully so then obviously you're you're gonna finish here mm-hmm. soon because i think you've been here a while is that mm-hmm. right i've been here for nine months now nine months okay so you've probably seen a lot of mm-hmm. what goes on and how it could how things can be done mm-hmm. And you want to to actually apply this elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that I think many people need around mm-hmm. the world. So if you are going to speak to someone who is wanting to change their lifestyle to be you know more healthy or whatever, they're just mm-hmm. contemplating making changes. Mm-hmm. What what words of wisdom or advice would you say to them in terms of moving forward in that direction? Move. So <laughs> the most important th- thing for me is, is to move. Yes. Um, by moving, you will exercise your vital organs, which mm-hmm. is hard, but also you will develop muscles. Yes. Um, that's that's absolutely crucial. A lot of people will tell you that diet is crucial, but yes. if you eat healthy and don't move, um, you will still very likely develop a cardiovascular disease. Uh-huh. Um, so moving is important. Cycle, walk, swim, run, do any sort of exercise and, and the more the better. Uh, 30 minutes is not quite enough. Do an hour, do two hours. Okay. Try to stand on, sit too much. Yes, yes. And then um, it, it, nutrition goes hand in hand with um, moving. So cut down anything unhealthy. Um, temperance tells us to avoid anything that is harmful and eat in moderation that which is which is good. That means avoid any cakes, any sweets, any soft drinks. Uh, drink pure water, three liters a day. Yes, and then eat as many vegetables. As, as you can, mm-hmm. seven, eight portions, fruit, less, five portions, and then whole grains, and nuts, and seeds, the original diet. Mm-hmm. People say you cannot uh, get fat on a vegan diet. You can get fat on vegan diet, <laughs> and that's why it's crucial to eat healthy and uh, and move as, as you, well. you eat healthy. Uh-huh. Okay, so you need that combination Absolutely. of the two yeah. <laughs> otherwise you've got to take in and you've got to uh, burn put out, <laughs> put out that's um, like the cycle of life isn't it you, you take you give and it just keeps going around you have yeah, to have it in balance you're just storing and it's not good. yeah that's true that's true so one more question is how have you found living a healthier life to impact you spiritually a healthier lifestyle has got a lot of benefits um, and one of them is um, it sharpens the frontal lobe we know that the body is a temple of the holy spirit 
and we are to, to look after it. But if you do look after it, the benefit is your reasoning ability and your ability to connect to your creator increases exponentially. Mm. Um, you are able to have a very clear um, communication with God. So mm -hmm. your, your prayer life uh, gets revitalized. Right. Mm. You will be able to pray uh, for long periods of time. You will not be falling asleep. Yes. You will not be tired. You will be less sick. So you will be able to pray more, read your Bible more, worship and adore God more. Mm -hmm. And you will be able to witness as well. Okay. Um, because you can only give what you have. Yes. And a lot of people come to me and say, I want to look like you. And I would say that's very easy. Um, and then the important thing is point them to point them to Christ. Yes. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have anything that separates us from the world, mm. then we will not uh, draw people. Yes. And that's how uh, how it helped me. I uh, understand that anything good comes from God. Yes. Um, that includes health and wellness. It's my responsibility to look after my body and, and maintain it as a well-oiled machine. And as a result, he uh, promises to, to speak to me, to bless me, and to keep a lot of diseases um, mm. away from me. And we can have that um, communion, which uh, you would not be able to in, in an unhealthy uh, state of body or mind. Yeah, wow. So it sounds like um, having a healthier lifestyle has enabled you to have a richer experience yeah. with God yeah. through all of the ways you described. Yeah, yeah. wow. And if you read um, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, it's, it's full of tips and promises yes. regarding health and the body. Yes. I think that's something that a lot of people are longing for, a deeper experience. Maybe they don't know quite how to achieve that, but obviously um, living more healthfully might be a way that would make it more possible for people. A lot of people try to separate the two, but yes. for me it's, it's very closely connected. Can, mm. We are one being, um, body, mind, spirit, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we cannot separate these. One influences the other. It's absolutely crucial that all of them are in perfect health. Yes. That's very, um, very good. Thank you for sharing all of this today. I am sure our listeners will have been blessed by what you had to share. Our guest today has been Frank Rubusik, and uh, he's from Czech Republic. He's here at Hogalia Lifestyle Center in Romania, where we are on location with this recording. And uh, I'm your host, Casey Butler, and thank you so much for tuning in to Healthy Living Around the World. God bless. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.